don't let Pastor Tim fool you. He indeed does love his new shirt, as you can tell. I leaned over to him and I said, I dare you to wear it at 11 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> so I took my two older children to a birthday party yesterday at the YMCA, uh, the gymnastics center, which shout out to the Y because any birthday party where my children can run and jump and flip and then come home, not all hyped up on sugar, but a little bit more mellowed than when they left is a great birthday party, in my opinion. And the birthday girl's name yesterday, her name was Whitney, and Whitney was turning six. And as I was talking to Whitney's dad, he said to me, he said, man, she has been so excited about her party. I mean, literally all week long, all she's been talking about is her birthday party. And she's been dancing and she's been singing around the house. And the whole house has been in sheer anticipation for the event uh, on Saturday. He said she could barely, barely stand it. And I thought to myself yesterday, oh, to be five again. Right? To experience the excitement of an upcoming party or a trip or the big one, right? Christmas morning. To be filled with, with the hope and the expectation of even the smallest things. And let's be honest, for most of us, the next birthday isn't the most exciting thing anymore, is it? Some of us, it's a really good thing, but uh, for most of us, it's a reminder. Uh, that we're one year, we're not quite as good as we used to be. Uh, well, as followers of Christ, we're called to live in a similar state of anticipation, a similar state of excitement. We're called to live expectantly, but not just because of our next birthday or an upcoming trip. We're called to live expectantly for the return of Christ called to hope and to long for the return of our one true king. And this morning, as we're continuing our series this summer entitled Twist, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus and how they have some sort of surprise uh, that challenged G people in Jesus' day, but also continues to cha challenge us, we're looking at the second coming of Christ. And as Pastor Tim said, Last week, he thought these were going to be light and easy, these parables this summer. And I can just tell you far, far from it. I kept thinking all week long, why did I not push this one off on one of our guest preachers and let him preach about that? But the more I've wrestled with it this week and the more I've prayed through what God has in store for us this morning, the more I've really been challenged personally. And not by specific eschatological, which means the end times points of views. That, that's not it. That's not what's been the most challenging thing. The most challenging thing is why the second coming of Christ should be on the forefront of every Christian's heart. And on the forefront of every Christian's mind. And think about it. We say it in the Apostles' Creed, right? From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We talk about it. But how often do you think about it? And does it affect the way that you think about not only yourself, but of the world around you? And this morning, the question that we're asking is, how is the second coming of Christ significant for you today? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark 
chapter 13. We're going to be looking specifically, specifically at verses 28 through 37. Hear God's word this morning. And from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until they have seen all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he should come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, say to all stay awake. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, our King, we pray that you would help our hearts and our minds to have clarity to your word this morning, that you would change us through the reading of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in order to make sense of this passage, we've got to do a little bit of background as to the context of what Jesus is saying. And so for the moment, I want you to, to, to rewind the tape and put your, yourself in the disciples' shoes, right? Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? Put yourself in Mark's original audience here. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, but we've got to go back to the first part of Mark 13. And the first part of Mark 13, Jesus is with his disciples, and they're in Jerusalem. And in verses 1 through 4, it says Jesus is coming out of the temple with his disciples, Right? And so one of his disciples looks over at Jesus and he says, Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Right? So he's talking about the temple and he's talking about the area they're in. And Jesus responds and he says, do you see these great buildings? Jesus said, there will not be one left here. Not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so what Jesus looks, turns to the disciples, they go, hey man, aren't these buildings great? And Jesus says, these buildings are coming down, and they're coming all the way down. Now, just think about that for a second. Put yourself in the place of the disciples. He just said the temple will be destroyed. Can you imagine what they're thinking? I mean, just think about it. You're going, huh? Hey, hang on, G. What? What did, <laughs> what did you just say? And you, you don't know uh, it doesn't say that he kept talking, but it does say that he goes and he sits down later. So there's kind of this period of time after he stops, uh, tell, he tells them this before he actually explains what he's talking about. And I can just imagine these disciples. It's like, it would be like strolling with a bunch of middle school guys or middle school girls, right? You say something that catches them off guard and what happens? You keep walking and they're behind you doing this. Man, he's lost it. He's crazy. I mean, you know, they're just behind you doing this right here. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? What is he talking about? So I get that picture of the disciples in my mind until they finally sit down. Right? So we pick it up in verse 3, and it says that he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple. And then Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, All right, Jesus, tell us when these things are going to happen. And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then in verses 5 through 23, 
Jesus proceeds to tell them of the suffering that they can expect and that will come to his followers of Christ with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And we have the privilege of, of, of playing it forward, and we know that that actually happens, right? In A.D. 70, Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. But weaved in this, this, this message that Jesus is telling his disciples is a note about the final victory which is imminent with the return of Christ. And we see that in verse 24. So he tells them all these bad things and he tells them, here's what's going to be happening and you'd best flee and you'd best run. And then in, in verse 24 you see Jesus says, but in those days after the tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then they will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. And so he's saying suffering and destruction is coming. And it's coming with the temple. But we have hope. And we have hope because I will return. And so now you get to the passage of the fig tree, which is where we are this morning. And so Jesus goes from telling about the second coming to the fig tree, the lesson of the fig tree, right? That as soon as its branches become tender and it puts out leaves, you'll know that summer is here. What is Jesus saying? Well, in contrast to most trees in Palestine, which were maybe olive tree or evergreen trees, the fig tree loses all its leaves in the winter. And so it would be completely bare. Then in late spring... Again, as the branches become soft from the sap flowing through them, the leaves begin to peer once again. And when the leaves begin to peer, it's a sign of certainty that hot days are coming, that summer is near. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's telling his disciples that in the same way the fig tree is evidence of summer coming, so also are all the things I've just said. And then there's evidence that destruction and persecution are coming as well. But you've got to get, remember, put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. Right? If you're hearing this, and you're hearing Jesus saying this, what are you thinking? Let's be honest, you're probably freaking out on the inside, right? I mean, if you go back and you read what Jesus describes and the events that will take place when Jerusalem is destroyed, you will think, this is it. This is, the end is here. The end is near. And, and it's all over. Jesus is coming back. Now, granted, he's still with them. He hasn't left yet. And so this is still a puzzle to them. But what Jesus is not doing is he's not telling them that all these bad things mean I am coming back now. He's just saying that they will happen before I come back. And here's why that's important. And it's important for us this morning is that people have made an awful lot of money writing bad books with bad theology and bad movies about the second coming, the second coming of Christ and what that's going to look like and all things are happening. So if you're a Kirk Cameron fan, I'm sorry. It's terrible, <laughs> right? I can't even remember the name of the books, but he's made a whole lot of money doing it. This passage, it gets misused. For people to say, well, bad stuff is happening, right? Wars, rumors of wars, nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom, earthquake, famines. Jesus must be coming back. He's coming back. I know. I know he's coming back. He's coming back soon. I can feel it, right? Unless you've heard people talk like that, right? I had a gentleman say it to me on the airplane the other day. I think he's coming back. 
I think he's coming back soon. And you kind of laugh about it. We have to. And yet, lest you begin to feel too good about yourself, how did you feel on 9-11? Or even looking at the global political scene right now, have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard somebody say, has it crossed your mind? He's got to be coming back soon. He's got to be coming back soon. And it's an understandable response to some degree. But Jesus goes to great lengths to show them that all this bad stuff will happen. In fact, it has to happen before I come back. But don't confuse the chaos and then the destruction with the end itself. I'm only saying that it's going to happen. And that it will happen. And so what we see is that Jesus is showing them that yes, these things are inevitable. And when you see them, as you see in the same way that you see the fig tree, and the fig tree begins to bloom, you know that summer is coming. When you see these things happening, you'll know that it is coming as well. And so he's pointing to that, but he's also foreshadowing the fact that you, when, when, when you see when these things happen, you'll know that I'm also coming. So have hope. And that when I come, I'm bringing the most glorious summer ever imaginable. That winter will not be forever. That I am going to come back. And I will return. And so what then do we know about the return of Christ from this passage? And we know at least two things. Number one, that it will happen. It is a certainty. But the second thing is we don't know when. Right? If you look at the verses from 32 on, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus makes it clear that no one knows the time. But be on guard and be aware. And so why then is the return of Christ so significant for us today? Well, first, what, what is it? What is the doctrine of the second coming? And I think Tim Keller puts it beautifully. He says, the purpose of Christ's salvation is the restoration and the renewal of all creation. That's it. It's God making all things new. It means no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no more injustice, no more poverty, no more racism. It's having heaven coming down and to use token from Lord of the Rings, it's God making everything sad come untrue. And the doctrine of the second coming of Christ has massive significance for us today. Because Jesus tells us to be a people who watch for it, who long for it, who yearn for the second coming of, of Christ. And if you even think about how Jesus sums up the Christian life, it's two things, right? What? Love God and love people. And you think, how then does the, the, the doctrine of the second coming help me love God? What has massive implications for how you love God? Because to live expectantly is to be living out Christ's expectations for you. It means to be living out his commands of holiness, and evangelism, 
and discipleship. And it's not living in, in fear, necessarily. Right? Like I, I've heard a Christian comedian one time uh, using how, at times in his life, his mother or his grandmother would use the second coming of Jesus and say, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? Right? And we laugh about it because it's funny, and, it's, and there's something about it that's like, really? You would use that? And yet at the same time, what do you want to be doing? And where do you want to be when the curtain closes? You see, it's living out Christ's expectations, not out of fear, but out of delight, but out of gratitude. It's loving God for the sacrifice of his son on the cross for your sins. And so it's out of that that we live and have a desire to long for the second coming of Christ. Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. He says, according to scripture, the person who wants the restoration of the earth wants the kingdom of God, whether he or she knows it or not. And the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king the one who will return with great power and great glory. And however we are to understand this great and supernatural act in whatever form it takes, the second coming of Jesus Christ means to a Christian that God's righteousness will at last fill the earth and that the real world in all its trouble and all its turmoil will be transformed by God's shalom, God's peace. Ultimate peace. And he goes on to say, passionate Christians want the return of the Lord. And so friends, this morning my question is, are you a passionate Christian who longs for the second coming of Christ? Are you a passionate Christian who desires what God desires? Who lives out how God has called you to live in light of his commands? As you look for the sake, and I, I get it, it's, it's a hard thing for us to put our minds around. And here's why I would say it's so hard is because when we live in comfort, and many of us do, it's hard to wrap our minds around praying and thinking about the second coming. But Plantega goes on, and he, and he goes on to say that passionate Christians want the return of the Lord. But then he adds, so do compassion compassionate Christians. And if you think about what does Jesus call us to do? Love God and love people. Passionate Christians and compassionate Christians. And this is what he says. He says, when our own life is sweet, we can look across the world to lives that aren't sweet. We can raise our heads and our hopes for those lives. We can weep with those who weep and hope with those who hope. We can look across the world, across the room, across the hall. Could justice really come to earth? To the second coming, for us, it may be hard. But for many in the world, it's not. He writes extensively about this and he goes on and he says, God's kingdom has always sounded like good news for those people whose lives are bad. He said, if you're a slave in Pharaoh's kingdom, 
or a slave on a Mississippi in Mississippi cotton kingdom. You want the kingdom of God. He says, if you live in an African village and your life has been decimated by the AIDS epidemic, you want the kingdom to come so much that you can think of little else. And let's just bring it home a little bit further this morning. I would say that the, the coming of the kingdom is very significant to our mission partners as well. To those who struggle and fight for clean water in Africa, the kingdom of God is significant. The coming kingdom is significant. For our friends in Spuhil, Mexico right now who are begging God for rain to come so they can plant crops, so they can eat, they can live, the, kingdom, the, the second coming of Christ is a big deal. For those here, even in our own city, in our town, whose hearts are broken by the loss of a loved one. Praying, God, your kingdom come. Restore all things new is a big deal. And a deep prayer. How do we respond to Christ's second coming? Are we compassionate Christians? When things are going well for you, are you able to turn your heart and your eyes and your mind away from yourself and your own comforts and place them on the hearts and the lives of those in the world around you? Because we have the privilege and the joy and, dare I say, the responsibility to do that, to go before the king on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are suffering both here and abroad, and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. We hope for the hopeless. We pray for those whose prayers feel like they're they're getting nowhere because we know true hope, the true hope in the living Christ. And so this morning... As we think about these things, are you a passionate Christian? Think about that this week. How are you living in light of God's expectations? Are you an expectant person living in light of God's expectations for you? I can't take credit for that, by the way. That came from one of our elders who's actually in the room right now. But we were asking me my sermon. They said, hey, what are you preaching? And I told them. They said, boom, boom. And I was like, brilliant. You guys are great. Next time come together. Are you living expectantly in light of God's expectations? Are you a compassionate Christian looking to the hearts and the lives and the needs of others? If not, my challenge this week, my encouragement this week is is go before the Lord. Ask God to give you a heart of compassion, to give you both a heart of passion and compassion both for yourself and for the world here and abroad. And may we pray in the depths of our souls. May we long for Christ to come back. And may we pray with John, who prays in Revelation. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our King, we pray that you would give us hearts and lives 
focused on you and your word, on your kingdom and your goodness, that you would change us, that we would desire to see your creation renewed and restored, to see hearts and lives, our own hearts and our own lives renewed and restored, and yet at the same time, the hearts and the lives of those around the world who are suffering renewed as well. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.